Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. Growing up on Long Island, I was an avid bird watcher, or as these hobbyists are known colloquially, a birder. Over the years, my passion and support of birds has continued to grow, like that of many older folks. But it's not just a hobby for retirees anymore. Surveys over the last few decades have shown that bird watching has become one of the fastest growing outdoor activities in America, along with hiking, skiing, and camping. And one of the largest increases in interest has occurred among people in their 40s, the 45 forward crowd. More recently, birding has surged during the pandemic. Not surprisingly, it's a healthy and expensive activity, it gets us outdoors, connecting us to nature, it's relaxing and calming, but it can also be challenging and socially engaging, while also enabling us to remain socially distanced. In today's episode, Dr. Miyoko Chu, the Senior Director of Communications at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, offers a wide-ranging conversation about the state of birds and what it means to the future of humans and to our planet overall. Trained as an ornithologist and science journalist, Miyoko works with the lab staff, supporters, and partners to engage people of all walks of life in learning about birds and protecting the natural world. She'll talk about how the lab is exploring cutting-edge technology and citizen science participation to transform people's experiences with birds and to advance science and conservation. While field guides remain traditional sources for identifying birds, innovative apps and websites are speeding up the results for all generations. Miyoko has helped create and deliver content that provides interactive online experiences through platforms such as the lab's All About Birds website, the innovative Berlin Bird ID app, Bird Camps, Living Bird Magazine. During the current pandemic, the lab's eBird observations have led to some provocative conclusions. 80% of the bird species examined were reported in greater numbers in human-altered habitats during the pandemic lockdowns. And as we mark the Audubon Society's annual Christmas bird count, we should note that in this holiday season of gift-giving, birds are one of nature's supreme and vulnerable gifts to humanity. So now let's meet today's guest, Miyoko Chu. Miyoko, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. It's really a pleasure having you. Um, and uh, I just want to start out like I do with many of my guests by just, you know, having you talk and tell the audience a bit about you and your, your background, your journey, and how you got interested in birds. Sure, yeah. Um, thinking back uh, about 40 years ago when uh-huh. I was 11 years old. Wow, okay. Um, I was a city kid who didn't really pay attention to birds or think about them much didn't have any sense of urgency at the time about our the environmental health of our planet. Um, but when I was a girl, I went to San Francisco Chinatown with my father. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we went there to just go out to eat or to look around. And we passed a poultry truck that was parked there on the sidewalk selling chickens, but also pigeons and other fowl for, you know, presumably people's dinner table. Um, and I became very upset at that thought and uh-huh. started to cry. And my dad, I think, was very empathetic because when he was a boy in China, he had raised pigeons himself. Uh-huh. 
And on the spot, we just decided to buy a couple of pigeons and take them home. We did wow. not eat them. We put them, <laughs> we built a, a coop in the backyard and I would sit in the coop and tame them and feed them and watch them. And that was my beginning of, wow, these birds are amazing. I felt so much joy just when I was with them, when I was observing them courting and mating, eventually having uh, babies right there in our backyard. Wow. And that was the start of my interest in birds. Wow, that's great. So we're like the, the, the perfect combo. You're the city kid. I was the country kid growing up, you know, and, uh, you know, so in those days, you know, the long, suburban Long Island was still the wilds of Long Island in many respects. So, you know, nature was our backyard. We had like 365 acres of, un, you know, uh, unbroken uh, woodlands. And so that became my, my little lab, you know, and I, I guess uh, as a young kid, I would go out and, you know, maybe I, I was a, I guess little boys like to collect things. So I would collect feathers and I collect rocks and shells and I collected birds, you know, in terms of birdless, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it became, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it, it's, it gets you outdoors certainly. And I think it, it brings you, it brings you to another world. And I remember um, going out and, re- and just feeling like, well, now I'm entering their world, you know, and it was very interesting experience for me, you know, and, and I think, I think it is sort of calming. I think that a lot of people now realize that as you get older, that, you know, people talk about what are recreational activities and uh, being outdoors is, is good for your health. They've discovered Yes, um, there's studies showing that nature, you know, being in nature relieves stress and is good for well-being. And and I think, I know I've personally felt it throughout the pandemic, just going outside, going for a walk. And then often when you're on a walk, if you are tuning into birds, you'll notice something very beautiful or interesting uh, right around you every time because birds are easy to encounter once you start looking for them. And like you said, that collector part is a really fun aspect of being a bird watcher, collecting experiences, collecting memories, collecting species that you've seen in places that you've been while seeing them. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, it's been likened to, you, you, you see new birds, it's sort of like a little treasure hunt, you know, you kind of like, oh, great. You know, I mean, you know, yes, it's, it's, it's putting together a list, you know, of your life's birds and so forth, but it's also your experiences with them and where you were and where you first saw it and so forth. So, yeah, I've enjoyed it. So, um, so, and, and just talk about just the trend. So I'm sure that, that the lab is quite aware that, that bird watching has really increased a lot during the recent years and decades and talk a little about what you think, uh, let's expand on, you know, what is, what's, ex- you know, exciting about bird watching and why people are doing it more and more. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly during the pandemic, we saw a huge spike in interest, and we saw that through participation in our citizen science programs where people, if they see a bird, they're able to report that, and those data are very helpful for science and conservation. But we also saw it through people just uh, downloading our bird ID app to help them ID birds or taking online courses or just looking up information on our website, which really told us that bird watching was striking a chord as people were more at home. Some people might have been working from home and looking out their windows, whereas normally they wouldn't see that. I know I was around my home more. 
uh, and therefore I just saw more of what was around, um, but also people intentionally going outside when it was safer to do that than a lot of indoor activities. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, one of the things is it, it offers a lot of variability of opportunity. So I guess uh, when a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Survey Service does surveys, they look at oh, you have occasional birders and you have active birders and you have enthusiasts. And but it offers you a lot. You can do stuff. You can do it around your house, or you can go out and, and look for them in in particular places. Um, so I think that yeah, I, I think I was reading one survey that said that. Um, uh, birders who go birding away from home have an average age of 49, 47% being under age 45. Um, and around the home bird watchers, an average age is 54, with 33% being under age 45. So it definitely, you know, is breaking that that old stereotype of, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll just be, you know, retire and go bird watching, you know, or fishing, you know. But so I think it, people are really enjoying it and, and taking part in it. Um, yeah, I do think that it has the reputation of being a pastime of uh, an older demographic, maybe because that's the time in life when we're slowing down and noticing things around us a little more, just have the time. But we're also seeing uptick in interest from younger generations as well, which is incredibly exciting. Uh, college students, high school students, uh, school age kids. Um, and it's a very family-oriented activity, too, because anybody can spot something and right. say, what is that? And uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun, no matter whether you've ever tried it or not, or no matter what age you are. Right, right. And you do, it is interesting. You, you can do it as a solitary thing, but it's also, you know, a very social thing. You can there are lots of clubs, there are lots of you know, get-togethers, you know, there are outings. Um, I guess, well, right now, for example, the um, there's the Audubon's Christmas Bird Watch, you know, which is ongoing now. And but I know you folks also have a, a spring, you know, uh, bird watching uh, day, uh, the Global Big Day in May during the migrations in May. So, yeah, it does give you an opportunity to, to do it in lots of different ways. That's right, and you can even do it from your own kitchen table looking out the window uh, right. so it's an, the ultimate flexible uh hobby yeah yeah we used to have hummingbird feeders when i was growing up and that was always exciting to you know put them out you know in the kitchen window you can just sit there and watch and incredible to watch uh, but uh you know. yeah they're incredible just to see them because they're so beautiful with their um shiny feathers and the way that they fly and they're so tiny little jewels they're also really incredible in terms of what they do in their lives um, the ruby-throated hummingbirds that we have here in the east fly in um, before winter they fly all the way across the gulf of mexico some of them and that is a more than 500 mile journey over open water a tiny tiny thing like wow. that yeah. If you imagine trying to do that as a human being, and then you compare yourself to a hummingbird, you feel, wow, wow. that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk a little bit that more about that later. That the, the migration, but uh, but let's just sift a little bit and talk about about the lab itself. Just give us a little bit of a sense of uh, the range of stuff that the lab does, which really covers a lot of territory, and a lot of interesting stuff, and a lot of things that that you know average citizens can participate in. Yes, uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where I work, based in Ithaca, New York, is actually a 
worldwide organization because we do so much online with whether it's science and technology, whether it's um, engaging people all around the world in science and bird watching or um, some of these online education uh, courses that I mentioned. Um, and it's really our mission just to increase the understanding and appreciation and protection of birds. And we do mm-hmm. that through all these facets of activity, ranging from research to education to um, citizen science and outreach. Right, right. So let's talk a, bit, a little bit about, I mean, um, you know, I would like to talk a bit about the the research, you know, sort of the world-class science you do, um, you know, the Center for Avian Population Studies, Biodiversity Studies, you know, what are we learning from these projects? Well, all these projects um, will study different facets of birds, you know, whether questions about why do we have so many diverse kinds of birds in the world? How does, how do they evolve and um, how do they relate to to the current day compared to the past. Um, There's also some applied research that really has to do with um, what are the effects of human beings on birds? How are we affecting their populations through time and through space? Um, But yeah, part of the thrill, um, I think, of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is inviting everyone to be contributors to that understanding. So, For example, in that research area that you just mentioned, we have um, the Macaulay Library, which is the world's largest collection of bird and other animal sounds and videos and images. And the reason it's the world's largest collection is because those are contributed by people all around the world documenting Mm. that diversity in color and and behavior. Uh, So that is a tremendous resource in its own. And then we have a shop in bioacoustics where the researchers are studying the world of sound and animals and how do you detect their sounds and how do you automatically know who's there and how many there are. And that can apply mm. not just to birds, but we work on elephants, whales, wow. and all kinds of other animals. Wow. 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 Um, and so people can just contribute uh, uh, on their own. How do they do that? Yes, well, we have a program called eBird. It's at okay. eBird.org. And um, there's a free account where you just sign up for one. And once you've done that, you can contribute in a number of ways. If you want to contribute your bird sightings, like whether it's out your window or on a walk, you have a way to online just go and say which birds I've seen today, how many, and then you submit that. And you're able to see other people's results as well, Mm. which is really fantastic. But you can also upload a photo, you can upload a sound, and all those incoming data come into the Macaulay Library, the the multimedia parts of that, and then help us power a lot of this research and some of the tools that we're able to provide people. Right, right. So you're basically harnessing technology in ways that we, we couldn't really do this, but I mean, yes, we could do it in a much more... Uh, laborious way in the past, you know, in terms of collecting this data. But now this really enables us to really, you know, I mean, I guess this is what we, we talk about when we talk, think about uh, big data. This is what the, really the power of it, that we can really do that, you know. Um, it's really the, the cross-section of technology and people power, right? When mm. you put them together, because it's the people who are supplying the ability to hear and see 
the planet, you know, the activity and wildlife across the planet, but it's the technology that enables us to ingest that and to process it and to output it and say, this is what it looks like. Right, right. And and what are we finding so far about, you know, from our population studies? I know that, you know, there are lots of issues about, you know, the extinction of species and, um, um, you know, sort of what's happening to the class of birds uh, as overall. Um, so what, what are some of the broad, broad line trends we're seeing? Yes. Well, unfortunately, what we're seeing is really alarming declines in wildlife. Birds are some of our most visible and most understood of all wildlife. They're, they're great sentinels to tell us what's happening in our landscapes. And what they're telling us is because birds are declining so rapidly in many places, it's signaling something that's fundamentally uh, coming apart that is not just affecting birds. We know it's uh, pollinators are also declining. Mammals, you know, pretty much wherever you look, we're losing biodiversity. So that is a signal we need to pay attention to and, and act upon. Yeah, you know, I find it interesting. That, you know, there's a lot of focus now, um, you know, with on in terms of plants, in terms of, you know, native species, planting native plants and invasive species and um, their impact. And I sometimes I stop and I think, uh, well, you know what the most invasive species is? <laughs> Us. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, you know, we, we just change everything where we are. And uh, I, I'm not saying certainly that's, but that's the human species, but um, there are consequences to that, you know. That yes. And I think, um, you know, like if you imagine humans as invasive species and we're taking away the habitats and turning them into lawn and, and asphalt, we also have the ability to think about how to restore or reverse some of the negative impacts that we've had. Lawns is a great example where we might be an invasive species, but we can plant native uh, species in our gardens and that can support a whole lot of wildlife that would otherwise vanish. Right, right. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think um, there are lots of things we can do to to support birds. Um, I, I think uh, you know, so certainly one of them is you know thinking about what we plant, and certainly you know living where I live in the suburbs, that lawns are very popular. But you don't need as much lawn. <laughs> you can just have some you know aesthetic decorative parts of it, and then like you know around lots of the edges, you can plant you know foliage, you can plant shrubs, you can plant things that support, you know, birds and butterflies and lots of, you know, uh, uh, fauna. So, um, so we're going to, we're going to talk a bit more about that, when we, but we're going to take a quick break, uh, Miyoko. And uh, so folks, we're going to, we're going to be in a short break, uh, but there's much more to come. The Yoko Chu from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. 
Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. Uh, we're talking today with the Senior Director of Communications at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, uh, Miyoko Chu. Uh, before we continue our conversation, I just wanted to mention that you can find out much more about the lab at the lab's website, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Miyoko, www.birds.cornell.edu. Is that right? That's it. Yep. That's it. Okay. So, uh, after the show, you can log on and learn much more about that. But we were, before the break, we were talking about ways to support birds that we can do, you know, as citizen scientists or just citizen supporters. And one of the things um, is just being, you know, conscious of the shrubbery and the, you know, the, the flora around your house and, and the ways in which it's small ways um, we can sort of take little bites in the, is in our suburban or urban lawns that aren't particularly supportive of birds. But what, what can we do, Miyoko? Well, right before the break, we were talking about lawns and how, you know, lawns don't support very much diversity of wildlife, including birds. But um, I have found some really heartening results in our own yard where I took away part of the lawn, just like a border, um, and put in native plants and a few shrubs. And after just a couple of years, the differences are quite amazing. I have goldfinches coming in and feeding on these beautiful, you know, cone flowers that were purple and, you know, filled with bees in the summertime. And in the fall, when they go to seed, I have these beautiful uh, yellow goldfinches coming in and feeding on them. We now have set more than 70 different native bee species in this wow. little patch in my yard. Whereas I didn't even know that many kinds of bees even existed before we started uh, doing that. So I, I highly encourage that if you have that kind of space, play around with it by uh, putting in different kinds of native plants. And even if you just have a balcony or an area where you can put pots out, that's fabulous too. Um, you can even volunteer in your neighborhood or local parks if you have that level of uh, interest in landscaping. Right, right. Yeah, I think, you know, again, you don't need to do too much. You can just, you know, nibble away at the edges. And I find that, um, you know, there are lots of edges of, of lawns, too, where it gets close to trees. And the reality is lawns don't do well in that area anyway. You know, it's partly shade. It gets interrupted by you know, tree roots, you know, which is a natural phenomenon. So, hey, why not do something different in those areas and, you know, create a little 
a little bit of biodiversity uh, uh, without even people noticing it. You know, I mean, <laughs> certainly we, we talked about, you know, how it's difficult for certain birds, especially the ones who years ago relied on expanses of fields. That was their natural habitat. So those have been eliminated, you know, like, and I, I understand there's a need for housing, but, you know, so we, we eliminate, we look at open spaces and say, oh, let's put up a housing development, you know. Um, so we lose those habitats, but there are ways we can try to, you know, push back a little bit and create some spaces, although it's difficult. You know, a lot of birds require large expanses of space, you know. Um, and, and again, some, you know, the, the opposite problem is also true, I found in suburban areas where I am, where some of the the deep woods birds, they need big expanses of forests, right? And that's not happening in the suburbs, but, you know, you do what you can do. So I think some of the steps you, you mentioned are, are valuable. Any, anything else come to mind that we can do? Um, what about feeding birds? What about? Um, yeah, well, first I want to mention you're absolutely right. There are some species that really rely on, for example, mature forests or really larger expanses of of natural landscapes, but there are many birds that do fine in your little patch of yard, you know, where they can raise a whole family of young just in the space of less than an acre. Uh, so yeah, definitely don't underestimate your contribution and your neighbor's contribution to creating a patchwork like that. But yes, in terms of making your own space bird friendly, um, you know, bird feeding is one of the most popular pastimes. And um, if you don't have a bird feeder yet, it's a very simple thing to get started in. Um, and you can just put in some seeds. Some of the favorite kinds of seed is called black oil sunflower seed. And that will bring in uh, different kinds of birds that are right in your yard that you might not have seen up close before. But that's a great way to get to know them. If you want to do even a little bit more, you can make your yard extra friendly um, by putting up a birdhouse where some species actually want to nest inside a cavity. Uh, you can create more brushy areas that uh, will attract birds to um, build inside shrubs or in trees as well. So leave even, a lot of people don't know this, you can leave even, um, trees that have died uh, standing as long as they're not going to, you know, be dangerous. But um, in our neighborhood, there's a dead tree with a hole in it where there's a family of screech owls wow. nesting in it. And yeah, during the pandemic, all the neighbors started realizing that there was this family there, right, you know, in the middle of our little neighborhood. And they're quite the attraction now. And that wouldn't have happened if that dead tree wasn't left standing. Right, right. Yeah, that's nature for you. There's a purpose for everything, right? <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like, okay, okay, let's, let's get past the aesthetics and realize, yeah, the screech owls, a lot of woodpeckers. Um, yeah, I felt bad that, that one of our, you know, trees in back, you know, was not doing well and, and you know, did, fell over in a storm, you know, but I was like, oh, well, there goes that, uh, you know, uh, red-bellied woodpecker family you know, oh, have yeah. to find some other place but uh mm -hmm. yeah yeah now there i guess there's some with respect to feeding i guess for me there are just two things that i watch out for which is you know i i think it is important like when i put up my feeders this fall it's just like clean them out you know clean them first make sure that you know birds do get diseases and i there's i guess there's been some discussion about you know, feeders and, you know, sometimes being a problem for, for birds. 
um, in terms of passing of diseases. Um, um, and I guess the second thing was like, I don't, you know, when I, when the spring comes, I take them down. It's like, uh, birds were meant to eat insects. <laughs> so don't, you don't need to feed them in the summer. Yeah. yeah, it's quite fascinating how, you know, in the springtime, many birds that uh, even prefer seeds at some times of the year really need that protein source to raise their young. And so right. they become very intent on finding insects at that time of year. Yeah. And you can feed them year round. We do at the Lab of Ornithology and they'll still come in and, you know, they'll still look for other types of food too. But, you know, I think a lot of people take a break during spring and summer. And then when it's wintry and we're feeling much worse about their ability to find food, we start it up again. Right, right, right. Now let's talk a bit more about, um, about eBird and the and things like the Project Feeder Watch, you know, again, things that people can really participate in. Public. Yes. Well, the the really fun thing is that if you're interested in watching birds and contributing your effort toward science and toward conservation, there's a range of projects that you can pick depending on your lifestyle, depending on your interests. eBird is one of them. We mentioned the Christmas bird count earlier. The Christmas bird count is going on now all the way till January 5th. And right. if you're interested in that, check out uh, the National Audubon Society's website where you can learn about that count. Um, with eBird, that's a that's an opportunity you can do any day of the year from anywhere, anytime. So not just at Christmas, um, but uh, what you do is you can just sign up and um, there'll be instructions on the website for how to check off which birds you've seen and when. And the amazing thing is that once you submit that information, it goes into a massive database that not only outputs visual information about what birds others have seen around you, um, you could check out any other part of the world if you uh, are curious what else is being seen. Um, and so you're contributing basically to a real-time picture of where the birds are and how many there are. And that is used by birders, but it's also used by educators, by scientists, and in conservation. Uh, really a powerful tool um, to help us make decisions about how to help birds and understand what's happening to them. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I know that um, you um, you authored a, a book called uh, Songbird Journeys, Four Seasons in the Lives of Migratory Birds. And um, this, of course, is uh, for me, has always been an, an amazing, just the whole idea of migration. You know, I mean, you know, yes, there, you know, there are these fantastic uh, journeys that the birds make, you know, some of them, you know, from the Arctic to, you know, the Antarctic, you know, um, and, um, you know, and there are these flyways, uh, you know, through the Eastern flyway, I guess there's a central in, in the Americas, a central right and the Western, basically, or is that right? Of basically three major flyways and, and, I think, you know, here again, there's a, it's a fascinating journey for a lot of these birds and also a dangerous one. Yes. I mean, the whole phenomenon of migration just really lights up the imagination. Um, a lot of us are familiar with maybe the larger birds like geese or cranes making mm -hmm. these incredible 
migrations, but even the smallest birds, like we talked about before, even hummingbirds, but also many tiny songbirds and warblers and thrushes and tanagers make these annual migrations as well. And not just in our hemisphere, birds are migrating uh, uh, across the world. Um, So for me, what's really amazing is how do they know how to do it? Uh, Some of them even come back to the exact same spot where they had their nest the previous year. How do they survive it? How do they do this thing that we humans would not be able to do? I mean, I just have to say one of my favorite facts, you think about um, a bird that hatches out in the summer, a few months later, it's making that journey mm-hmm. of, you know, potentially thousands of miles, never having traveled before. Its parents don't teach it. Uh, and, you know, the songbirds don't teach each other how to do that migration. Uh, and yet it, it, it's been doing that for, you know, the species has been doing that for ages. Yeah, I, I just, I, I guess there are, there are lots of theories. I, it, it seems to me that there may be a combination of, of factors. I mean, I think that people have talked about, you know, some sort of, uh, under, you know, innate understanding of, of um, stars or, you know, navigational systems that, that are related to, you know, the earth itself. Um, but it seems as it that, you know, it's, you know, not, not totally dissimilar, you know, when I, when I go, um, you know, looking, go by going on, uh, you know, short trips, um, you know, the, the first seg- segment of the journey is like, okay, I go by certain navigational guides. And then as I get closer to my destination, I'm like, okay, I recognize that. Oh, now I recognize that. And then I guess, oh, now I know exactly where I am. But, but it's, it's, yeah, it, it evolves as, you, as the journey goes. Yes, um, there are some things like landmarks that they may be able to learn and use in future trips. That first trip, you know, it's been shown that um, during fall, for example, birds have an, in, an innate sense to go south if they're here, like where I am in Ithaca, New York. Um, they just have this directional sense, but then they're using additional cues, like you said, like the stars, potentially like uh, now, um, mountains or rivers or visual cues that they may see below. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, it's it's just unfortunate. It's difficult to figure out how to deal with some of the natural hazards. I mean, I guess I understand that one of the big casualties of birds is 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 the lights of skyscrapers, right? In big cities where they, you know, fly into windows, you know, because, you know, a lot of, we don't, we don't think about it, but a, lo- a lot of birds are night flyers, right? That's right. Um, a lot of these songbirds travel under cover of darkness. Um, we don't see them, but if you go out on a quiet night at the right time of year, sometimes you can hear their tiny high-pitched notes that they're calling as they pass overhead. Hmm. And it's been known for ages that light attracts these birds at night. So there had been lighthouses, for example, where there you know, could be hundreds of birds coming in and colliding with those lighthouses well, today we have the equivalent in our cities where the light from these cities can disorient birds and actually draw them in where they're at higher risk of colliding with those buildings. And you may have seen in the news sometimes people do find large numbers of birds that have been com- come in because of certain weather conditions and been attracted to the light. Yeah. And, and are there similar hazards with, I mean, there's been some discussion about windmills as well, these large turbines that, you know, are, you know, open spaces, you know, where you can catch the wind, but also, you know, do present certain 
especially if if they're along wind streams where the birds could take advantage of the currents, they also run into these um, turbines. Is that right? Yes. Um, turbines sometimes can kill birds, especially there's concern about raptors that mm-hmm. uh, collide with them. But, um, you know, what's really interesting is when you look at the proportion killed by turbines versus windows, windows are by far much bigger source of mortality, just because, as you can imagine, how many buildings and windows there are. So, about 624 million birds per year are estimated to collide with buildings in wow. the U.S. and Canada alone. It's a tremendous number of birds. Uh, but one of the, I guess, silver linings is that windows is one of the things we can directly change, mm-hmm. uh, unlike you know widespread habitat loss, which maybe you can't personally change in your own life. But taking a simple step of uh, treating your window, so it's uh, you. I can talk a little bit about techniques later if you're interested, mm-hmm. but essentially okay. breaking up the reflection so that the birds don't try to fly through those windows. Right. Um, and turning your lights off at night uh, when they're not needed so that they're not drawn in as they're migrating overhead during that migration right. season. Right, right. Yeah, some of the things are just our structural problems, like, you know, like where, where I am, uh, you know, we have major airports, you know, and uh, it's like, yeah, that's nice. They, you know, they're, they're they're geographically appropriate for airplanes, <laughs> but they also happen to be, uh, especially you know, Kennedy Airport on in Queens, uh, where near where I am. It's just like, first of all, it's in the middle of a, a major um, stopover point for birds. <laughs> you know, ecologically, they're just in, it's just in a stopover area. You know. A, for not only water birds, but all sorts of birds, you know, and, and, you know, it's in the middle of, uh, it's in the middle of the Atlantic flyway. That's where the birds go. (laughs) And one of the things that you, you had mentioned uh, with whether it's turbines or airplanes, we have technology. Now there's a program called BirdCast that Uh uses radar to detect where the birds are aloft and when, and this is a kind of technology that can help inform airports or, uh, wind energy companies, hey, lots of birds aloft, let's power down the turbines or let's take steps at the airports to avoid collisions. Right. That's interesting. That's sort of the reverse of fishermen, right? Who use <laughs> sonar to check where the fish are. Let's, oh, let's go there. It's like, okay, let's go where the birds are not. So that's that's very interesting. I wasn't aware of that. So that's good. That's good. Um, so, Miyoko, we're going to come up and take another quick break. In a few seconds. Uh, so, uh, folks, uh, there's much more to come in our last segment with Miyoko Chu. So, don't go anywhere. We will be right back after the break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Miyoko Chu from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York. Before the break, we were talking about some of the things that you can do to support birds, especially during the migration, great um, migration in the fall, of course, in the spring, in terms of, uh, you know, helping them deal with some hazards like windows. So we talked a little bit about the Miyoko, but give us a little bit more about what we can do to basically try to help reduce some of the hazards for migrating birds. Right. Well, one of the reasons birds collide with windows is because they um, see a reflection in the window and they think mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe the tree that they see there is an actual tree. Um, so what you want to do is break up the reflection. Um, you can do that by hanging cords, vertical cords or horizontal cords on the outside. You can do it with decals, but you have to ha- have them close together about two to four inches apart. Otherwise, birds are just going to try to fly uh, in between the decals. Mm. Um, So it's a relatively uh, simple step. Anyone who's seen a bird uh, hit a window knows how heart-wrenching it is when that happens, but they can be prevented by some of these simple steps. Uh, Even uh, activity that could be fun with kids, just putting tempera paint uh, on windows, which is not permanent, and uh, allowing them to have a bit of fun while doing that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So migration is really kind of the uh, great mysteries of birds. And uh, there, there are other things, too, that kind of have always fascinated me. Like, um, um, I think I actually read a piece from, from the lab about this, about uh, starlings, just when you see great flocks of starlings, you know, travel, you know, in amazing formations and be able to, as an entire group, be able to to you know change directions and seemingly you know on a dime i guess they i guess the term i'd saw was uh murmurations right that's what the that's right yeah yeah it just it, it just never ceases to amaze me yeah and i suppose there's something in in the, the, the particular brain chemistry or wiring that they're able to do that um yeah, I think there have even been studies of the aerodynamics and the flocks and what cue does the bird behind take from the one in front. And yeah, it's it's a pretty fascinating and beautiful thing when you can see wonderful big flocks of birds. Right, right. Yeah. So in the last segment, I wanted to talk a little bit more, you know, I guess philosophically about the relationship of birds to humans and why it matters to us and what it tells us about the state of the world. And I guess, you know, you know, I forget the exact figure, but like I think perhaps maybe you tell me that you know one in four bird species is, is has been lost in the last uh, 
time, you know, I'm not sure exactly what time period, but we're losing a lot of birds. And what does it really mean? What does it um, uh, say about the state of the planet? And also talk about this in terms of the lab's efforts in conservation and biodiversity. Right. Well, it was two years ago when scientists at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and collaborators at other institutions put a number to this loss of birds really for the first time, where they looked since 1970, which is the year I was born, Mm -hmm. um, could they estimate how many birds we've actually lost? The number they came out to was 3 billion. As you mentioned, that's one in four. So at the time when I was a child, there would have been more birds, you know, we've lost the one in four. And unfortunately, the trajectory, if you look forward, if we do nothing, uh, we're going to lose um, half the populations of many bird species in the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, time is critical here. And we know that is true, not just for birds, but just the health of our planet. Um, And so, um, really, I think this is a call to action that we felt deeply within our organization and across uh, partner organizations, but millions of people around the world who love birds, who are united, you know, in that understanding of of the joy that they bring and the cultures that they connect. Um, People want to help birds, and by doing so, we end up helping communities of people and uh, the overall health of our planet as well. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, certainly there is just a, you know, there are ecological reasons. I think that um, certainly one of them and a major one is that they're major controllers of insects, pests, you know, that, you know, when you lose birds, you lose sort of a natural, um, uh, you know, uh, part, participant in, in, you know, uh, controlling of species and, you know, dealing with, you know, that's in, in insects do many valuable things too, but the, you know, if you lose just like, uh, or, or similar to in, in my area, you know, when, um, you remove predators, you know, like, uh, big cats, you know, um, the deer population goes, you know, in, in excess, you know, so you, um, it, you, you're throwing off the balance of nature, and not just, you know, it's a loss of, of biodiversity. Right. Uh, you know, it's all interconnected. And as you mentioned, the birds, you know, some of the fastest declining birds that we see are called aerial insectivores. They're the birds that eat flying insects. Mm-hmm. So you think about, yeah, they can consume quite a bit of mosquitoes, for example, mm-hmm. or other mm-hmm. pests, but also, you know, whether it's on uh, crops or in wild landscapes, they have a role to play. You know, you can also even think about um, scavengers, right? Like vultures, they're the cleanup crew uh, right. of the world. Um, so, yeah, those we call ecosystem services because birds do provide some services uh, to to nature. Um, at the same time, they're also just like priceless in terms of their beauty and their uniqueness, the inspiration and their place in our world. And when we lose one, we can never get one back. Right. right. Yeah. When, when uh, years ago, my, uh, my mother, who was a, a painter, um, she, um, she painted porcelain China and, uh, to, uh, you know, I still have, um, not too far from me right now, two of her 
lamps in which she painted uh, birds of paradise. Oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, they've always been like an amazing, like, wow, th- these creatures actually exist, <laughs> you know, and that's, so that's one of my, uh, I suppose, bucket list things. I'd like to go and, and, you know, see some birds of paradise, you know, South or Central America. Yes. And for those of you who have never seen them, if you if you Google on YouTube Birds of Paradise in Cornell, you'll come up with one of our viral videos that showcases a whole bunch of these different kinds of birds in paradise that will blow your mind. We call them shape shifters, some of them, Ah. because they turn into shapes that don't even look like birds. Uh, They're very otherworldly sometimes. Other ones are just extravagantly beautiful because they evolved on in a place without predators. So they had the ability to, you know, have incredibly exorbitant feathers without it, you know, costing them their lives at the right. hands of a predator. Right. So um, they are worth looking for, look, look, looking at pictures or videos of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, I also discovered about for me personally, you know, from, from watching birds over the years was, um, you know, just realizing that there, there were different styles of doing it. So I, I, so there was one for me of, okay, I can go out and look for birds, actively look for birds. Um, so I'd, you know, pick out a, an area or woods or something, and I'd go from spot to spot to spot. But then at a certain point, I also realized that there was a totally different way of also looking at birds, which is to stay in one spot and wait for them, you know, Obviously, look for a spot that may be at the intersection of the woods and fields, someplace where there would be more feeding and so forth. But, um, you know, that was equally valid and, and equally productive in some ways. And to me, that became sort of a metaphor for life, <laughs> you know, in some ways. Sometimes you could look for something and look for something and go and, yes, be active and proactive. But sometimes just wait, just be patient and wait. And, 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 and observe it, you know, things will come to you. Yes, I love how you've described that, you know, because whether it's you're looking for adventure and your treasure out there, or whether you have it come to you, it works equally well uh, with bird watching. And there are special rewards with um, what we sometimes call birding your patch, right? There's a special spot to you. It could be right next to your home, but you take the time to spend, you know, the changing seasons there and you'll see things that surprise you all the time and that change throughout the year and from year to year. And that's really a special and rewarding way to experience birds yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and now the one thing too, that's changed over the course of my life is that, that, and especially the lab has done a lot of work and you've mentioned, but perhaps worth mentioning again is that um, <laughs> I guess, as you get older, like me and, you know, not quite as mobile, um, you know, you go, you go out and you, and you hear birds, you know, I'm like, okay, now I think I know what that is, but I'm not positive and I can't find it, <laughs> especially if they're, you know, warblers up in the treetops. And, and so now you have ways to identify them. Yes. Um, so if there's one thing that anyone does after this show, if you haven't done it already, look for the free Merlin Bird ID app. Because that app will really help you identify birds in a very fun and easy way. And it, we just released last year the ability to help identify birds by sound. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a really fun experience. You just go kind of like the Shazam, right, for birds. Right. Uh, but instead of identifying music, it'll identify what bird you've, you've heard and show you a picture of that bird. But you can also take a photo. It'll identify it based on the photo. Or you can describe it and it'll, base, you know, based on your description, tell you what you saw. And the really uh, fun thing about this tool is the reason it works so well is because what we talked about before, the combination of technology and people power, where we have received just thousands of photos and sounds from people that are used to teach the computer, mm. this is what this bird sounds like. So when you hear it, Merlin is able to help you identify that. So right. it's really a team effort that this was created by bird watchers, scientists, and uh, computer whizzes. Wow, that's great. Merlin, I just want to repeat Merlin that. Bird ID app, yes. Merlin Bird ID, great. Okay. So before we go, I just want to also let uh, the audience know the lab um, is supported by the public. It's a nonprofit. So how do people contribute? How do they donate? Yes, we um, are reliant on donations in order to do our mission. And you just go to our website, birds.cornell.edu, if you would like to contribute. And if you join as a member, you will also get our beautiful Living Bird magazine Mm -hmm. once every quarter. And it's filled with uh, beautiful photos and inspiring stories about birds. Right. Full disclosure, I am a member, and so I have my latest copy of Living Bird, so it, and it is a, a great publication. So, uh, well, Miyoko, there's much more to talk about, and maybe we'll come back for the um, the big day in the, in the spring. We'll bring you back and bring back some of your colleagues and see how the spring migration goes. But uh, in the meantime, if people have questions about um, uh, that, how would they contact you? What's the best way to contact you? Uh, we have an email address at birds uh, dot, well, sorry, cornellbirds okay. at cornell.edu. Okay. Cornellbirds at cornell.edu. And if you have a question, you can send it over there and we'll see if we can get you connected with, uh, you know, your journey with birds, no matter where you are on that journey. Great. Thanks, Frank. Okay, folks. So once again, uh, tell your friends if you've missed my conversation with Miyoko Chu today, you can still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Uh, just or uh, just search my show, 45 Forward. Um, uh, you could also find it on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, roelresources.com. And just click on the 45 Forward tab where you can find out more about Miyoko. And also, people can listen to the episode. Uh, so, folks, um, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, or 3 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be doing my post-Christmas chat uh, with Tara Bowman. It's a very interesting encore conversation that I had with Tara, who is used to be the program director, now is the executive director of the National Aging Place Council, an organization whose mission is to provide resources and professional experts to help people age in place safely, comfortably, and successfully. So, folks, until then, keep moving forward, 45 Forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.